Turn to page 203 in your hymn book, in your hymnal. And if, if you all would do me a favor, I know that I know this song, but I can't really remember it. So if you could sing out, I would really appreciate it. All right? Number 203, Burdens Are Lifted at Calvary. Everyone, you can be seated. Thank you, Linda. Just a, a couple announcements to recap what we heard this morning. Uh, remember this Wednesday, April 17th, there's no uh, normal Wednesday evening Bible study. We have the uh, Thursday communion service on Thursday, so we won't be having Wednesday night. That'll be at 6.30 p.m. on Thursday. If you remember that, 21st Easter Sunday is next week already. It's Easter no evening service on that Sunday. The office will be closed that Good Friday and the Monday following. April 27th, NBC Teens doing a deep clean. Rooms, carpets, other areas of the church given a spring cleaning. There will be lunch. Uh, the teens who participate will get one summer event upcoming paid in full. That's a pretty good deal. Cleaning begins at 11.30. My girls will be there. They don't know that yet, but they... <laughs> The mother-daughter banquet is May the 10th from 6 to 8 p.m. Meal will be catered, catered by Mandy's Kitchen. Slips will be in the pews to come for you to RSVP. We need to do so by May the 6th. Uh, remember, tomorrow, 6 p.m., Women's Bible Study. Tuesday, 1 p.m., Grief Share. Uh, the normal activities for the week, except, again, no Wednesday night Bible study because of Thursday night Lord's Supper this very special week. Um, See here. Do we have any birthdays this past week? Any birthdays? Any anniversaries? Anybody just have a really good day at any point? Was there a birthday over here? 
That's fine. <laughs> Just a couple more weeks, buddy. You'll be you'll be good. All right, all right. Well, let's uh, let's pray, and then the ushers will come, and we'll have we'll have our offering. Two requests I forgot to announce this morning. Dana Garten had some tests done on Friday. He'll get the results on Tuesday. We want to be in prayer for him. Uh, and Sharon also, Andrew Bud McLaughlin, who is Patsy's dad, he's in Reynolds. Uh, looked initially like some sugar issues, but he may have had a heart attack. They're not sure. He's doing very much better today than he was yesterday, but he's still in need of, of prayer. And then all the things that were on our list this morning. Let's pray, and then the ushers will come. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this time that you've given to us this evening. Father, we praise you and thank you for the redemption that is ours because of your son, Jesus Christ. God, I praise you that it's finished, that nothing more needs to occur for our souls to be ransomed from our sinfulness, Father. We praise you. God, I praise you that your Son is Lord over all things, uh, that the ruler of this world has been cast out, that he reigns, that he is seated at your right hand, Lord God, and he uh, is ruling over all while you make his enemies into a footstool for his feet. Father, nothing can undo that. Nothing can change it. Father, you know all these requests. You know every single one of these names. Father, we lift them up to you, all the different needs. There's physical needs on this list. There are spiritual needs. Father, we have so many that are shut in and can't make it out. We have in nursing homes, in their own homes. Uh, Father, there's a need for comfort, for condolences and peace for those that have lost, for just severe illnesses, uh, just, just so many different things going on. And so, Father, we pray for your mercy to be upon your people, for your grace and your favor to rest upon each one and every family. And I praise you, God, that you're with us tonight as we gather here once more. We ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we praise you for your provision for us. We thank you, Lord, that everything you give to us, Father, we give because you have given so freely to us. Lord, we aren't paying you back. We're expressing the fact that you are our all when we give. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you when we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 <clears throat> We'd like to turn in your Bibles tonight to the ninth chapter of Hosea, Hosea chapter 9. When God uh, first made us, He placed us in what was intended to be our home. That was the ideal. In Genesis one thirty one, He called everything He had made good. Right? The whole world was good. Eden, however, was home. Then we rebelled against His rule. 
So God had provided a home for us, a place that contained everything we needed in perfect peace and harmony and security and safety. And then we believed Satan's lie that God wasn't a good ruler. That's what's going on between Satan and Eve in the garden. We could do better ourselves. We should trust our impulses. We we still believe that same lie every time we sin, that we know better, that we can do better. So God cursed humanity, which involved what? Immediate exile from the home God had placed us in. In Genesis 3.24, God drove out Adam and Eve east of the garden, and then He placed the cherubim, probably terrifying-looking angels to human eyes, and a flaming sword that guarded every possible way back to the tree of life. The creation story then closes with us, with humanity east of Eden, right? Away from home, homeless. Then in Genesis 4, Cain kills his brother Abel. He's cursed to be a restless wanderer on the earth. That's God's judgment. You'll be homeless. You'll have no root. You'll have no foundation. You'll have no place to call home. Adam and Eve were east of Eden, away from home. Cain was even further east, even further away from home. And that's been the story. But then many many years later, God in His grace comes to Abraham, promises a new beginning, and at the heart of that promise is what? A new home. Genesis 12, 7, to your offspring I will give this land. By the time we get to the book of Exodus, his family has become a great nation, just as God promised, but they're slaves in a foreign land, the land of Egypt. So they're far from home geographically because they aren't in the land God promised to Abraham, And they're far from home spiritually, metaphorically maybe, because they aren't enjoying the belonging or security or provision that being home represents to us. But even then, God had not abandoned His promise. His design would be fulfilled. He leads these people home through the Exodus, the central redemptive event of the Old Testament, the Exodus out of Egypt. Under the leadership of Moses, God freed His people from slavery through ten plagues brought down on Egypt. Through the Passover then, through the parting of the Red Sea, He led His people out to Mount Sinai to worship Him in the wilderness. And here in Hosea 9, He alludes in verse 10 to the way God originally met with Israel there in the wilderness. At Mount Sinai, Israel became a nation. A generation later, Joshua led the people into the Promised Land. Finally, God fought for His people there. They took the land driving out most of the inhabitants, but not all of them. God gave them rest in that land, a land flowing with milk and honey. They were home. But the home for Israel in the storyline of the Bible was a picture of God's ultimate plan. It was pointing to it, as it says in Second Peter 3.1, the ultimate hope is for something beyond even Canaan. Right In keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And on that day humanity's exile from God's presence will finally and truly be over. That is when we will get back home. We've never been home. None of us. At the beginning of chapter 8, Hosea, if you remember, spoke of the vulture, better the eagle that was flying over the house of the Lord in Israel. He alludes to Deuteronomy 28:49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the ends of the earth like an eagle swooping down. And Hosea indicates that eagle is now hovering over Israel in the form of the Assyrian army. Hosea's allusion to Deuteronomy is important because it's taken from the section of covenant curses that Moses proclaimed to the people as they entered the land. Deuteronomy 27 and 28, remember, spoke of the blessings for them if they kept the covenant and the curses for them if they did not. 
And at the heart of those curses, again, think about the heart of all these curses and blessings. It always has to do with home or being away from home. Right? And at the heart of this, at the heart of the curses for not keeping the covenant was exile from the land. They would be scattered if they didn't keep it, driven out, no resting place, no home. In other words, the exodus, if they didn't keep the covenant, the exodus would go into reverse. And now the eagle is hovering over Israel. The curses are coming. Right, The, the second part of verse 13 of chapter 8, Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. So do you see that? The whole story is going into reverse. Israel is going to return. They're going to go all the way back to being slaves as they were in Egypt when God originally found them. The exodus is going to be undone. That's Hosea's theme in chapter 9. God takes us down into the depths here, not to crush us in Hosea 9, but that we might see the glory of what His Son has truly accomplished. So let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your truth that it holds forever, Father, that nothing can undo it or change it. And so, Lord, I pray that we would see clearly in this text tonight what You have revealed to Your people. Help me to preach clearly. Help everyone be able to understand. We ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Chapter 9, verse 1. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore. Forsaking your God, you have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. The reference to threshing floors here might mean that Hosea is speaking to the people in the midst of a harvest festival, or that's what was going on in First Kings 12. Jeroboam instituted festivals from Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 16 in Israel. He instituted those in the northern kingdom. Once they were divided to mimic the festivals that were still going on in the southern kingdom in Jerusalem. And and many of you might know this, but wheat was beaten to detach the grains from the outer husk when they were threshing the chaff. They were both tossed in the air to be separated. The wind would blow the lighter chaff away from the wheat and just the wheat would remain So threshing floors were usually in communal spaces. They were up high, so the grain was more likely to catch the wind when they threw them, making them the perfect gathering places or meeting places for festivals. They were good communal places. And it was now likely that as a part of all that, Baal worship has been worked into these festivals. So it doesn't necessarily reference literal prostitution, although that was a part of some of Baal's fertility called it. Definitely, however, references the spiritual infidelity within Israel. God will not let go of that theme. Things were probably continuing as normal in this law before Assyria's all-out invasion. So the people, they still weren't afraid. They still weren't concerned. But look at the word for in verse 1, that little transition. God has not forgotten. You can celebrate. You can pretend that all is well. The harvests might even be good. But the issue with God remained. He had not forgotten. They were still spurning Him. So Israel shouldn't have been deceived by any prosperity, any normalcy. It was not a sign of God's blessing. Their festivals will look very different in the future. Look at 2 through 5. Threshing floor and wine vats shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please Him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival? 
and on the day of the feast of the Lord. The text is clear. Ephraim, again, Israel, shall return to Egypt. The Exodus is going to go in reverse. That's what the reference to Egypt is. It's a metaphor here for Assyria, which is the location where their exile will actually take place this time. An exile that can be likened to a return to slavery in Egypt. When that happens, what will the festival day look like? Well, in verse 4, it will look like a funeral. Right? It, 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 uh, they won't be able to offer their sacrifices there. Their food will be unclean. A dead body in a house made everyone who ate there unclean. Anything that made you unclean. If, if, if you could just go to the temple and be cleansed, then uncleanness wasn't as big of a deal. That's his point. In exile, there is no temple. So there is no opportunity for cleansing. The people are going to remain unclean. Verse 6 For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. That's in Egypt. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. Egypt will become their cemetery. Right? Again, it's Assyria, but that's what Hosea is talking about. Exile there, but he keeps bringing up Egypt for a reason. He wants them to understand they're going back to something. The exodus, the, the favor of God, the blessing is going in reverse here. He's warning people of God's coming judgment. That's not necessarily a pleasant thing to do for any prophet. No one wants to say what Hosea said back in verse 1 in the middle of a festival. Don't rejoice. Stop celebrating. But what if there was a disaster coming that nobody could see? Then a warning is the only loving thing you can do. right? But it's hard to get people to see that God's judgment is coming when everything seems to be going well. That The same attitude is is being repeated in our world today. It, it when when Jesus talked about it will be you know it'll be like it was in the days of Noah they'll be marrying and giving in in marriage what Jesus is saying is is that it will just look like life is going on like it always has been. People will be getting married, people will be going to work, people are be doing their own thing and in the midst of that is this coming judgment that there, that people are being warned about that nobody can see. It has always been the case that we don't we tend to forget or not think about or push aside the idea that judgment is coming especially when everything seems to be going well or when everything seems to just be going along normally it makes you think god is not there that's what it'll do hosea was dealing with that very thing peter dealt with that he was still dealing with it in the bible in second peter people were mocking the notion of judgment because life was going on like it always had and god hadn't shown up yet Peter reminded them God had a track record of dealing with those things. Remember, that was his strategy. Wrath, judgment. That's how God dealt with these things. Secondly, God didn't reckon time like we do. He still doesn't reckon time like we do. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So the delay is not a sign that judgment isn't coming. The delay is mercy. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Things were good enough in Israel, even at this time, to not take Hosea seriously. So the people wouldn't listen. Look at verses 7 through 9. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the Spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fouler snare is on all his ways, and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gebeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Punishment brackets 
verses 7 and 9, doesn't it? Hosea is accusing false prophets. That's what he's doing here. False prophets are always present. He's accusing them. The people refuse to hear God's word in favor of false prophets. The ones Hosea is attacking here, it's always been that way. Again, part of the point of Hosea is to let us see the fact that um, adultery or spiritual infidelity or all-out rejection of God generally looks the same. It's, it's, it's gen- not much ever changes. Right? We tend to give preference to prophets, preachers who tell us what we want to hear, not what we need to hear. That's humanity. It's always been humanity, which means it's the way of Adam. Right? It's the way of Adam. It literally always has been. In verse 8, where prophets are supposed to be watchmen for the people, these prophets couldn't protect the people. Snares await them on every path. God is going to catch every word, is what he's saying. All Israel's attempts to find peace and prosperity apart from God, they're going to end in disaster. So the nation is in great trouble in verse 9. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. The point of a watchman was to look out for invading enemies. In Israel, what if God was the enemy? What if God's the one coming that they need to fear? God's prophets were, were in a sense, watchmen against God's advance on behalf of the people if they broke the covenant, to warn them, look, if we break this, if we continue on this course, God is going to come near in judgment. In other words, God didn't launch surprise attacks of judgment on His people. He never has. He's trying to tell them what's coming. His word was in place to bring them to repentance. That's why Hosea is here, to enable them to escape, but they don't listen. And so the exodus, the consequence of that is that the exodus goes in reverse. God had once set his people free. Now they're going to enslave themselves. In fact, back in chapter 8, verses 8 through 10, Hosea revealed that they'd literally fulfill the curse of Deuteronomy 28, 68. There you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves. This is that time. God once took his people from Egypt. Now they'll return there in 8.13 to 14 and here in 9.6. And they'll do it willingly. Right? Egypt was a symbol in Israel of slavery in foreign lands. But this time it won't be Egypt. It'll be Assyria. They're the new Egypt to Israel in verse 3. God once led them from the wilderness to a land flowing with milk and honey. And now that very land will become a wilderness in verse 6. The story of rescue and redemption from slavery that had been driving the Bible story all this time is reversed in Hosea because Israel will return to slavery like it had been in Egypt. The exodus will be undone. Israel will be once more without a home. Notice how that theme comes to the forefront here in verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. So God first found them with love for a bride. The word but in the middle of verse 10, though, shows just how tragically all of that just broke down. And it broke down so fast. Right, The story of Baal Peor that Hosea references here comes from Numbers 25. If you remember that after Israel had been rescued from slavery in Egypt, Balak, the king of Moab, he was afraid this new nation that's on his doorstep was going to overtake them, so he hires Balaam, the prophet, to curse Israel. Fortunately, Balaam could only speak what God allowed, and he ended up blessing Israel instead. 
So Balaam tried another approach. He advised Balak to send Moabite women to seduce the men of Israel and worship their god Baal at a place called Peor. And Israel did that. So God had rescued His people from Egypt that they might know and worship Him and then they sleep with Moabite women and worship their god Baal. And as a result, as verse 10 says, they became detestable like the thing they loved. That's interesting if you're thinking in terms of a marriage here as we are throughout Hosea. Psalm 115.8 Those who make them, those who make idols, become like them. So do all who trust in them. We become like what we worship. Right? We're, we're created as worshipers to become like what we're worshiping. And here, a bride that God once loved had in essence let herself go, so to speak, and has become repulsive to her covenant husband. 24,000 Israelites died there under a plague of God's judgment for the incident with Balak. What's going to happen now? Right, look at 11 through 13. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow, but Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. The glory of Israel, as you can see, the glory of Ephraim in verse 11 is her children. That's her glory. That contrasts with her shame in verse 10. So her glory is the children God had blessed her with. Her shame is the worship of Baal. And since they've decided to pursue shame, there will be no more glory, which means no more children in verse 11. That's what God is saying. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. And those who are born or have been born will be slaughtered in verses 12 to 13. If you were to skip down to verse 16 for a moment, God will put their beloved children to death. They'll disappear like a flock of birds in his hand in verse 11. Israel will be stripped in Hosea of all her glory. Right? That's the point here. Her king, her wealth, her children, her land, and her relationship with God. So last week in chapter 8, that promised no produce in the field. Chapter 9 promises no produce in the womb. And any progeny there is will be destroyed by a foreign army at God's hand. This is a terrible picture of complete and utter judgment and destruction. The northern kingdom of Israel will be wiped completely out of the story. Look at verse 14. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? You hear Hosea here? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. So it's like Hosea pauses. Give them, O Lord, give them what? What will you give them? And what he's saying, what, what should he ask for? Maybe adversity so that they'll repent. Verse 15, every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. This is important. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to Him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Again, God recounts the establishment of this sin in Israel. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I begin to hate them. Gilgal, if you remember, was where Saul became Israel's first king. This is 1 Samuel 11. 
God's prophet Samuel, he took it personally. Remember the people asked for a king like all the other nations had. Samuel the prophet took that personally. Do you remember what God said to him though? 1 Samuel 8, 7, it's not you they've rejected. They've rejected me as their king. The appointment of Saul at Gilgal was the physical embodiment of Israel's rejection of God as king. In other words, once they did that, it couldn't have gone anywhere but downhill after. Look where they are. That's what Hosea is bringing up here. That's why Hosea says, every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. Right? It all goes back to that. Every sin, every sin, then every sin now, is an act of open rebellion, of treason against the kingship of Almighty God over His creation, over His people, in their demand for Saul. Which again, remember what that was. It was a desire to have a king like all the other nations had. To come to, to, to get security and stability and prosperity the same way that other nations did. There was a reason that we're told Saul was so good looking and that Saul was so tall. Right? Because it was that petty. We want that. You see, their eyes twinkled when they saw that. Our eyes still do. In their demand for Saul was the seed of every evil that followed. That little tweak. That no, we, we, we want a king we can see, that we want a king like the other nations, has led to all-out adultery for which God will cast them off forever. The problem here that we need to see is that Gilgal, if that's the way it works, if there's a root of why we rebel, then Gilgal tells the story of all humanity. We're all here. This is who we are. We could just as rightly say every evil of humanity is in Eden, right? Just like they could say every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. All our sin to this day stems from the one moment of rejection of God's rule over Adam in the Garden of Eden. Mankind has been cursed and on a downgrade since we first decided that we should know the difference between good and evil. That was knowledge we were never meant to have. We don't know what to do with it. We aren't divine. God led His people from the wilderness to the promised land. Now He will drive them out of the promised land. You see all the reversals happening. Where God once drove out the inhabitants of the land, now the inhabitants He will drive out of that land is Israel. It's His own people. The story of salvation is going into reverse in Hosea 9. This is a very bleak time in the history of mankind. The story began in the wilderness in verse 10 where God originally found her and loved her, prospered her, gave her a home, provided everything for her. And now in verse 17, they're back in the wilderness wandering among the nations just like they were in the beginning. The story of humanity is just bleak. Right? It's just bleak. That The opening genealogy, if you remember from Christmas time, from Matthew chapter 1, it, it, it purposely shows that the people end up right back in exile where they started. That's that's how it is when Jesus comes onto the earth. We've completely reversed the exodus. We've completely ended up back where we were without hope and without God. The beautiful thing, and the only thing we can see that brings us hope in a text like this as Christians, is that Hosea 9 is not the end of the story. Beloved, there's been another reversal. Something else has happened. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. But He is also us. We have to remember this. 
He is also humanity. Jesus is the second Adam. Right? Adam was a type of Jesus. Jesus is God's obedient and faithful son. What does the head of a new humanity, what does Jesus, as that, that, that's, that's the way the Bible moves. You look at Adam as this head of all humanity. And everything that happens because Adam is the head of humanity. When Jesus comes into the story of the Bible, clearly in the New Testament, God is purposely presenting him initially through Paul. Paul turns the lights on and says, you see, Jesus is a second Adam. Jesus is the true, the good Adam. He's the right Adam. He's God's obedient and faithful son. And as a new Adam, he is, in essence, then, God's true humanity. The real humanity. There was always a remnant within Israel. There was always a group, no matter how small it became, who remained faithful to God and will be saved. But at the center of the Bible is the story of Jesus, where the faithful remnant eventually came down one night to just one person. Right? Just that, that everything was hanging on this one guy for all humanity. As, as, as the second Adam in another garden. If this Adam fails, we're done. We're done. There was no one left between heaven and earth that night except Jesus Christ. And beloved, in the end, we find only Jesus is truly faithful to God. Why do you think we're told that in that moment, what were the disciples doing? They're sleeping. That's humanity. Right? That's humanity. Only Jesus does everything God commands. Only Jesus worships God the Father with the honor and the respect He deserves. Only Jesus does all the Father's will. Only Jesus never falters, never disobeys. Only Jesus truly loves God for all that God is worth. None of us has kept God's law as we should have. None of us has trusted Him like we should. None of us has obeyed like we should. None of us has worshipped like we should. Only Jesus, the, the faithful remnant, is fully and finally Jesus. This horrible reversal of the Exodus that we're reading about in Hosea reached its awful climax in Jesus. The exile from God reached its darkest moment, bared its fangs the sharpest in Jesus. In the garden that night, on Him, the curses of the climax of all God's judgment on Israel and the world were poured out in full And Jesus had to drink the whole cup. That's what He's talking about. This cup, if you're willing, take this cup from Me. What's in the cup? All of God's wrath. Through this very judgment of all the curses on Jesus, all the covenant blessings will be poured out on Jesus. When you read these prophets, Hosea, according to the New Testament, is crying out for one through whom repentance of sins can be granted. Right? We're, we're meant to feel the hopelessness of their inability to come back, of their inability to return to the Lord, and their desire to just keep doing what they wanted and keep not recognizing God's Word and honoring it and repenting. That, that That's a picture of humanity. Right? Humanity got worse and worse and worse and worse after we were kicked out of the garden. How are we ever going to get back home is the question the Bible is constantly asking. In Christ, the judgment of God fell on Jesus in our place. But beloved, as a result of that, all the blessings of God fall on Jesus in our place 
and therefore come to us. In Jesus Christ, all the curse for all our sin is completely reversed once and for all. God doesn't ignore our plight, nor did He look over it. He stepped into it personally, slammed on the brakes, turned the car around, and headed us straight back for home. That's what God has done in Christ. Verse 17 again, My God will reject them because they have not listened to Him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. What happened at the cross? The, 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 the second Adam, the obedient son, was finally rejected by God. This was carried out. And we were in Christ. Jesus cried out in Mark 15, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see that, beloved? The, the theme of reversal in the Bible reaches its climax at the cross. Instead of blessing, there's a curse. Instead of a land of promise, there's darkness. Instead of milk and honey, there's thirst. Instead of family, there's separation. All happening at the cross. Why? Galatians 3.10 For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's everyone. Cursed be everyone in all humanity. It's a quote. Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 27.26. He's quoting the covenant curses. Anyone and everyone who does not keep God's covenant perfectly is cursed. They'll experience the reversal of the exodus. They'll experience slavery for the promise of freedom. They'll experience exile from God. They will have no home. But Paul goes on to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. By whom? By God. That's Isaiah 53. Smitten by God and afflicted. He has put him to grief. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that... So here's here's where this whole thing comes to a head. So that, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham... What's that? The promise of home. The promise of home might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through Faith, Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Jesus experienced the full extent of the exodus reversed and the curse of the exile. But in so doing, being the only one worthy to do so, has accomplished a new exodus, the true exodus. Jesus Christ is God's perfect Passover lamb who rescued us from slavery to sin and death. What does Jesus do? He reverses the reversal of the exodus. He brings us back home to a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth in the presence of God. Jesus steps in and puts the story back on track. He makes all things right. He makes all things new. Jesus endured all the judgment that we might know all the salvation. You and I are dead in the grave. You and I are stillborn in our transgressions. Without hope, without God in the world, because humanity reverses the exodus. No one could ever be good enough to keep humanity out of exile. Right? There was no replacement until Jesus left his home in heaven with the Father, right? was born into our world, 
lived a perfect life, died an atoning sacrificial death, was raised from the dead to reverse the curse and bring us back home through his salvation. That's the hope we have when we read a text like Hosea 9 and we begin to realize humanity hasn't changed so much. We, we don't listen to warnings. We don't heed the word of God. We do what we want to do. Right? If, if we're in control of the story, we end up in exile. Right? We spurn the grace of God. Jesus makes sure, however, that he's the one that determines our destiny. I was in a Sunday school class when I was, uh, I guess I was in my early 20s, I think, and, and we were, I, I heard a guy say this, and it, it bothered me so much. Not theologically at the time, I didn't really understand too much of that at the time, but he said, he would always say, he said this over and over again, he said, our lives are the sum total of the choices we make. Right? And I, I, I think we tend to think that. You know, our lives are the sum total of the choices we make. Without Christ, that's absolutely true. But if our lives are the sum total of the choices we make, we're all going to hell. I mean, do we understand this? Right? If, if we're the ones writing the story... If, if we're simply left to be our destiny to be the sum total of the choices we make, who is, is self-righteous and arrogant enough to think the math will be I did more good than I did evil? Right? When, when we don't even know ourselves well enough to know all the time when we're doing evil. We, we don't understand how hopeless we are, which is why we don't understand how great of a Savior Jesus really is. There's been a reversal, beloved, a total reversal of what you and I were doing of what you and I merited, of the choices we've made. right? If there is no Christ, our lives are the sum total of the choices we make, and there's no escape, there's never any getting back home. Instead, we now reap what Jesus has sown. Do you see that? Jesus won a home for us by reversing the curse. We don't have to win it, we don't have to work for it. We live now as those who don't have a home, absolutely. But we are also irrevocably bound for home in this place where we have no home. Nothing can change that. The story for all who believe has been once and for all reversed through Jesus Christ. That will never change. Right? That's never, whether or not that's true for you is never dependent on what you're doing or not doing. We're saved from a reversal by a reversal. That's Jesus for us. So, beloved, know tonight, your record doesn't define you. It doesn't define you, not to the Father. What you do does not define you. It doesn't make what you do unimportant. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It means it doesn't define you. That should be hope and bring peace to everyone in the room. Right? The things we do don't define us. Jesus will make all things new. This is who He is. One day, because of Him, everything that brings us down will be erased. So what Hosea is doing, even in its bleakness, is pointing us to another reversal. That you and I, tonight, in our lives, as we go through them, might look to Jesus Christ 
and rejoice. Rejoice that the story has been irrevocably reversed by the new Adam. Let's pray. If you need to pray tonight while we're singing, I'll be down front. If you need to come forward for anything, I'll I'll be here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the perfection of your holy word. We thank you, God, for the way your word in every chapter, even in the ones that are hard to understand their place, you're, you're, you're constantly bringing us back to the truth of what Christ has done, sometimes by very clear prophecies, sometimes by very clear statements, other times by showing us the polar opposite of, of, of the redemption that we have. And so, Lord, I, I pray that Christ would sustain and keep us tonight and tomorrow. And I ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Turn to page 297. 297. Linda will play a song we all know very well. My Jesus, I love thee. I'll be here if you need to pray.